Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Elayla Latif. I'm Hannah Strong. And I'm Rogan Graham. On the show this week, age gap romances have rarely been as toxic as they are in May-December, and we spoke to its director, Todd Haynes. Barry Keogh gets to see how the other half live in Saltburn, and I'll be discussing the highlights of the Leeds International Film Festival. And we review The Killer, and I spoke to David Finch's longtime collaborators, Eric Messerschmidt and Ren Kleiss, all coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Guys, I feel like it's been such a kind of dark year, and in so many ways, it still is. But we have good news this week that we can discuss in housekeeping, at least. The strike's over! Woo! (laughs) We didn't sound as enthusiastic as I thought we were going to sound. Well, yeah, no, but there's other good stuff. I saw David tweeting that the uh, 100th issue of Little White Lies turned out to be one of its, like, best ever sellers, so that's very exciting. Congrats, It is, yeah. Thanks to everyone that that bought an issue kind of goes without saying obviously you know the podcast is now bi-weekly which will not pass people by um it's a hard time to be a magazine it's a hard time to be a journalist so it does it really does like mean a lot when people buy the magazine and when people become members and supporters so uh we're not just saying that every week for show it is like kind of vital to us being able to do what we do so we are very grateful Oh, well, I, I am very grateful that we will finally get some people doing some more press tours. I think we've been really starved of like Emma Stone being totally delightful about poor things. And yeah, I mean, who else? There's been so many. Timothy Chalamet. Let's see what he has to has to say <laughs> defending the choice to make Wonka. That'll be I was good. Gonna, I was going to say yeah, defending himself, defending his actions is, is the correct word. I got an email about a press conference for it and I, I, I have no kind of interest in the film, but I was like, almost tempted to go to the press conference and just be like why why are we doing this what what is the reason but also why didn't they just make paddington 3 i know they're making that at some <laughs> point but it's been a really long time since paddington 2 what it's, are these segues <laughs> yeah it's weird that paul king decided to make wonka instead of paddington in my opinion it's weird but i mean i'm sure you know it's that thing of filmmakers been like oh i want to push myself artistically and what could be more challenging than making a musical about Willy Wonka? So, with a miniature Hugh Grant, 
Though I did see, I don't know if any of you have seen this, but um, Aldi's Christmas advert, which is always a highlight of my year because I, I love Jim Broadbent and he always does all the voices for them. Aldi's has done a, a Willy Wonka themed Christmas advert with a conker named William Conker who owns a chocolate factory. <laughs> it's very, very funny. I mean, they're funny to me at this point in the year. I feel like anything is funny to me, but... Um, but yeah, no, it is good. I, I think it might be better than Wonka. <laughs> yeah, more artistic integrity and uh, love for the the art of cinema and putting things on the screen coming from Aldi than from the president of Warner Brothers, who a couple of days ago tried to cancel another film for a tax break, you know, which was odd to me because also you'd think that like you've stopped being the villain temporarily with the strikes coming to an end. And like, why would you want to invoke more wrath? It's so bizarre, especially because, like, first it was Batgirl, which, you know, Batman is obviously their big property. That's their big kind of all their hopes live and die on him. Um, And they cancelled what shelved the Batgirl movie. And now they're trying to shelve the Looney Tunes Acme versus the people or whatever it's called. The people versus Acme. I can't remember the exact name, but um, yeah, it's about Wiley Coyote suing Acme. And for, for presumably having bad products and John Cena is meant to be in it. And apparently, by all reports, there were lots of people saying that they'd been to test screenings and they were involved in making the film. And by all reports, it's delightful. And they just shelved it because they couldn't be bothered to figure out how to release it. And now it looks like Warner Brothers have had to do a U-turn because of the outcry. So hopefully someone will pick it up and we'll, we'll actually get to see it. I think the world needs that right now. It needs like some just like silly cartoon Roger Rabbit action you know that that could heal us i think so and also john cena is a good actor i i will die on that hill i'm right with you he is way better than dwayne johnson and i don't know any other wrestlers but i'm sure there are more batista's number one. Oh well yeah batista's number one but if we're putting you know the kind of if you look at the films they do you know john cena is mm. jason so momoa he's better than better than momoa oh miles better yeah. than momoa no yeah. i i'm with you and I, I think as a comedic actor he's especially good so, like, I, I, yeah, I really want to see the film. There's an amazing clip released by the composer of them, um, like, recording the score. And they had, like, just this, like, sea of people singing, like, meep, meep noises to, like, the, the tune of um, Tchaikovsky. It was, it was incredible. Just, like, you know, that, that we've... So many comedies now are so bad. And I just think this could be really fun. And it seemed to have a lot of, like, practical effects and big kind of interesting set pieces and yeah i mean i you know it kind of gives you hope that complaining about these things does actually make a difference sometimes well we're all certainly adept at that i mean i'm just (laughs) so yeah it has it has does feel like something is changing something's in the air especially with all of the stuff that's coming out about all those mcu films like a lot of them really underperforming the tv shows kind of basically going by with like you know, not making a blip of influence on the culture, despite, I think it was 20 million per episode of She-Hulk. And they're only 30 minutes long. So that's really something. Mm, Um, Makes you wonder who's doing the accounting over there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but maybe things are about to change. Maybe we're going to get grown-up films again. Maybe workers' rights will be respected forever. And the Wile E. Coyote film is going to be amazing. (laughs) Well, I mean... You know, talking about grown-up films, like it obviously, you know, I've just been saying how excited there aren't this bloody Looney Tunes film, but there's also just a lack of films for kids as well. It's like 
you know, everyone was amazed that Five Nights at Freddy's did as well as it did. And it's like, well, the property was hugely popular with children and there's like nothing else for them to watch. So, of course, they're going to all turn out to see the PG-13 horror movie. It was like Megan as well, you know. It's like, of course, these kids are desperate for stuff to see at the cinema because they've not been catered for for so long. And as desperate as I am for like good adult movies, like the ones we're about to discuss today, actually, um, mm. I'm also desperate, you know, for just more like competent filmmaking. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> I know, we're not asking for much, are we? But I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even like, even like, I, I saw Napoleon, and by the time this episode goes out, I think the embargo will have lifted, so I think I'm allowed to say that. But reading the New Yorker profile with um, Ridley Scott and kind of just this idea of making a film with actual like extras instead of just like copying and pasting five people over and over into the background of a scene. I think he used 800 extras for the Battle of Waterloo, and it's just like, yeah, he could do that because he's Ridley Scott, but like, it shouldn't just be a guy who's been doing this for 50 years who gets to kind of make a film nicely. It should be a kind of, you know, studios should care about this more. They should care about what they're putting in front of us. And, you know, it's it's sad that it's so difficult to um, try and kind of get them to believe that instead of treating it like it's uh, fantasy football. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm very glad that... Um... The Gladiator 2 is back in production because I did read that they're going to have Paul Mescal fight a group of baboons. Woo! I want to see that. I definitely want to see that. I would just watch a film that's that, to be honest. Just Paul Mescal <laughs> fighting various CGI animals, actually. <laughs> yeah, it could be his own castaway. <laughs> <laughs> in, like, tiny denim shorts. Like, yeah, why not? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Somebody get Warner Brothers on the phone. We know how to fix your company. We have ideas. We'd make a billion dollars first weekend. <laughs> well, we should get a move on to one of uh, three very interesting films that we're going to be talking about this week. First up, it's May, December. Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member who receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady AQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. Twenty years after the notorious tabloid romance gripped the nation, a married couple with a large age gap buckles under the pressure when an actress arrives to do research for a film about their past. But first, here's Hannah's interview with director Todd Haynes. First of all, yeah, uh, congratulations on the film. Also, congratulations on being the only filmmaker that my mother and I agree on. Um, she's not a film person, so the fact she like loves your films is a huge deal that, to me. That uh, is really, that's pretty cool. It's, it, there are like, I mean, in terms of filmmakers for your mum to love, like it's a great one. She, Velvet Goldmine is one of the first films she like recommended to me as a teenager. Oh I've heard, actually, I've just heard that somebody just told me the story. My mom turned me on to Velvet Goldmine. Like, I'm, You're like, I'm really old. Like, I'm so fucking old. 
<laughs> she but, also loved that water though. She's a she's a Ruffalo stan. So she was like, this this Todd Haynes guy, I like his style. And Maida Sambo, I know nice. she's gonna she's gonna have a blast with it. That is awesome. Yeah, I mean uh, I came out of the film in Cannes and I called her and I was like, Hey, I just saw this film that you're gonna love. Like I don't know when it's coming out, but it's so funny and so dark and I know that it's exactly her thing. That's so so cool. well you obviously well you sounds like you have a cool mom regardless she, of her yeah, liking she's, my movies. She's she's pretty cool. She doesn't understand my job, which is <laughs> fair. It's a weird job to have. She loves anything kind of remotely true crimey and this kind of has that like oh, yeah. salacious element to yes, it. <laughs> so, absolutely. Um but our podcast listeners don't want to know about my mom. They already hear about her a lot anyway. Um <laughs> For my money, like, this script is one of the kind of funniest scripts of the year. I'm very interested to hear about Sammy Birch and kind of how this came to you because this is her first, like, script, right? This I is... mean, as far as I know, this is her first script, which is just unbelievable. <laughs> and she's just... It's also only as of the last few days because the Writers Guild strike got resolved that recently. Has she been Finally able to join? Well, and just be part <laughs> of it, you know, be at the New York Film Festival with us, which was just such a joy and she's so you know this is all very exciting for her but she's just she's also just this incredibly as you as you would imagine cool and solid person you know so she brings this fortitude and her integrity is just yeah but she's so sweet how did excited. the script find its way to you though i'm curious is it um something it, that- it, the, the script was circulating within the world of hollywood or indie movies or and it it had uh been and I don't even understand exactly the blacklist, but it's like a way of oh, distinguishing yeah, yeah. scripts of interest for that people are, are looking at. So it, it, it had been given that distinction, and then I think Pam Koffler, who works with Killer with Christine Vashon at Killer, mm-hmm. I think had read it before it got to Natalie Portman's producing team, and then Natalie and her team sent it to me in at the height of COVID to check out. And Natalie and I have been, you know, hoping or thinking about possibly working together at some point in the, from the past. And this uh, this script was just so um, exciting. We didn't know when it, it would happen. We didn't know when even in the United States we'd get back to work. Natalie was in Australia where everything was completely business as usual um, in, in film production. But everything had stopped where I was, so there's a lot of speculation, a lot of stuff circulating. Uh, and I had other things that I was thinking that I was planning to do before getting to this. But this one I knew I wanted to get to. I mean, yeah, I think any uh, filmmaker would be excited by that kind of script. And yeah. just the, I mean, as I kind of said before, like true crime has very much even in COVID, like, had this massive boom. And I think the reckoning in pop culture with the implications of that is very interesting. As someone who's kind of, like, you've made many different genres of film and dealt with kind of in the real world, things like um, Superstar and Dark Water, what's your kind of perspective on that element of popular culture and that obsession we have with kind of these salacious real-world stories and making art around them? It's it's something I haven't necessarily circulated around or, or, or developed a, a, a yen to explore in and of itself as a particular aspect of public interest in true crime and and I and and friends of mine and impre- like amazing filmmakers and very serious people pay much more attention to it than I do I'm not obsessed with it quite that way and in fact I wasn't that 
aware. I kind of it was it was sort of peripheral noise. The Mary Kay Letourneau story itself, when it emerged in the '90s, I knew about it, but I just wasn't tracking it closely. So it was so much the way Sammy situated it in the script and the layers that that created and the sort of discursive space between the past and the present and the, this actress, you know, coming into this town, you know, with her agendas and her presumptions about getting to the truth and all that stuff. Um, that created this fascinating uh, resistance, I think, to, the, to what happened in the past. And so there was a level of suspense and almost an investigative journalist, uh, you know, structure to the script as a result. Yeah, she's coming into it a little like Dark Water where she's kind of like, yeah. I'm going to get to the bottom of this situation. Yeah. yeah. And then we have that amazing kind of mirror scene between her watching the already Lifetime movie-esque version right. of the story. And then right. at the end, we see her interpretation exactly. of that story. Um, <laughs> it's your first kind of like explicit dealing with filmmaking, kind of like that right. meta thing of a film about filmmaking, which I always am a big fan of. Um, yeah, I am too. I was going to say, is this was this something that you were kind of keen to actually get to explore explicitly? Because you've obviously dealt with celebrity a lot in your kind of work. Yeah, I, I mean, I've always circled the theme of making a film about Hollywood and particularly, but really, as you, as you can understand in my films, like it would be, I was drawn more to old Hollywood and classic yeah. Hollywood. <laughs> and there were even versions of, early versions of the concept of uh, Far From Heaven, as I recall, that where, where the, the husband was an actor in Hollywood. Oh. Um, and that it was, it was in that context that his repressed homosexuality was going to reveal itself. But that's about as far as I've gone in any specific way. So yeah, this came kind of, you know, as a surprise. Um, as, as, ha as have many projects that have come to me since I've sort of cracked open the door and let people know that I am somebody who will look at other people's scripts and not just be the person who has to write them and develop them myself. On that kind of note, I'm curious to know, like, obviously you've worked both ways, you know, you've kind yeah. of written your own scripts and directed other people's work. Do you approach that any differently in terms of pre-production? Like, do you find that there's any kind of shift in your filmmaker mentality between working with someone else's work? Or is it all very much the same? Only that you get such a head start in, if not, I was going to say a head start in collecting the references and the visual language and the cinematic language and the way you want to sort of tell the story when you're writing it yourself. If not, it being in fact an interpretation or a reexamination of cinema from the past like other films I've made like Far From Heaven. But the same thing happens. It still has to be translated from something on the page to a visual medium, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's just a quicker and more concentrated process uh, that I find I need to undergo for something that I didn't, that I haven't been living with and developing for, for years. And kind of on the note of, we, you were just talking about old Hollywood, I'd love to kind of know more about Charles Melton's involvement here because I'm just of the correct age to have seen Riverdale, which I know that you hadn't seen when he came to the project. I hadn't um, seen him in, in Riverdale, yeah. <laughs> oh, you, but you'd seen... Well, I saw the beginning, I saw a little bit of the first season, but he wasn't on the show yet. Oh, when it first yeah, premiered, he, he comes yeah, in yeah, the yeah, second yeah, yeah, season yeah. or something like well, that. Well, this is what I was curious about, because obviously Riverdale has a very kind of like melodramatic 
tone to it and very kind of I don't know how I would describe that I mean I don't think anyone really knows how to describe it at this point in time but um I'd love to kind of know it's it's one of those beasts that like every time I check in with friends who watch it they're like I mean it's finished now but they're like oh yeah no they've gone back in time now and then like that's the thing that's happening and I'm like I I I thought this was about high school just like (laughs) hanging out um but yeah I'd love to kind of because he's so great in the film he's so um amazing as Joe it's kind of like one of the most assured performances of the year I think and I'd love to kind of know yeah how he got involved was it a or like lengthy audition process it it was I mean look uh, I I work with Laura Rosenthal who I've been working with since Velvet Goldmine 98 so many years and we now have this incredibly rich and long (laughs) history together and when we when certain projects require finding somebody extremely unique upon which the, the success of the film really rests in so many ways. And this was true for Finding Millicent Simmons, who starred in Wonderstruck, the deaf actress, young actress, who was a non-actor, who we, had to, we auditioned from you know, hundreds of deaf kids across the country in the United States, and then just found this gem, this, just this, this girl who was just, just t- swept our, us away, you know. Uh, we knew that this was a comparable burden uh, on this on this project, the role of Joe and how he would function, especially around these incredibly powerhouse not only characters but actors in Julianne and Natalie. And so we just did what we do: we put up and announced the film and put out, you know, through agents uh, what it was and circulated sides for actors to audition to read. She screened a ton of of them. And came to me with about eight or something uh, tapes. I saw a picture of Charles Melton, and I was like, "No, this isn't. This isn't. (laughs) He's too unreal. He doesn't look like a real person. He's too insanely gorgeous." And then I watched his uh, his reading, and I was astonished by it. It was so fully formed how he understood who Joe was. But it was so clenched and so fragile and so, you know, restrained and sort of inarticulate. And I, it was not how I pictured, it was not how I imagined Joe. Other actors were maybe closer to how I sort of pictured the character playing in this world. But I, I kept going back to Charles and Laura kept going back to Charles. And then we auditioned him with, have, had him read with Julianne Moore. And she didn't want to, like, tip the scales, but she was like... This guy is, it's crazy what's happening here. And it was just an example of, this is, this is the best part of a collaborative creative process, is that, you, you know, things get filled in for you. And you want to be open to being surprised and not know everything from the start and keep learning about what it is you're doing mm. in layers, you know. And Charles provided that for, for me. Now, he doesn't, he doesn't own up to this. He, he's like, I couldn't have done this without you, Todd. And, da, 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 da. and I'm like, Charles, <laughs> <laughs> you, you knew who this guy was from your life, from your experiences, from your knowledge, from your unbelievable abilities as an actor. And I just helped it get in the can, you know? 
Yeah, I mean, I, 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 the character is so um, kind of special. It, it's not a kind of man I think I've seen really in films and one I would love to see more of, that kind of gentleness and restraint and the slow kind of like really heartbreaking unfurling of his character across the film, and yeah. especially in the third act. It just, I, I he know. breaks your heart. Like, he breaks your heart. It's, it's But it's so minute. It's, it's so... Um, it's so granular what he what he does, and and then he also did things like he put on forty pounds. I said, Charles, you got. I saw a picture of him on the beach with a little bit of a tummy, and I was like, that's what we got to do. Who committed to the craft? Like he so did that he didn't mind that, no, and he didn't I mean, mind yeah. changing his shape and just getting a little more suburban in his in his in his a little more like normal in his in his physicality again very different to what he was having to do for Riverdale <laughs> um, speaking of su- the suburbs though this is your first film in the south which I'm really like interesting because I know the script yeah. was originally like Maine it, I believe. it was yes. so was that like, your decision or was it a practical thing I'm very curious because obviously it feels like you're so immersed in that world in the film and the kind of like the genteelness of it all and yeah the gossip and the kind of manners. And yeah. I mean, Savannah is a, a complicated and fascinating place. And I knew it from having gone there to the film festival. I had just been there for Velvet Underground. And it was practical, but it was also a creative decision. But it came out of the fact, the simple fact that the, when the, our schedules lined up last year for the fall, it was late in the fall. There was no way we could find anywhere in the eastern uh, northeast that we could shoot as Maine or shoot in Maine and have it be May because mm. it had to be the graduation month in the United States. And so I started to think about Savannah and Sam Lysenko, the production designer, and I had just um, had a heartbreak where we had a movie we were working really hard on making happen and it all it fell apart. But I loved Sam and, and we were like, okay, we're going <laughs> to... We're going to resurrect our energy <laughs> and take it somewhere else. And we, so we went to Savannah in August, the most lethal month in, in the South, with uh, Mason plots uh, from killer films. And the three of us just started to like look around. Sam and I had already known that Gracie couldn't possibly live in historic downtown Savannah. Mm. But there was this beach community, Tybee Island, that was 20 minutes away. And we were like, ah, that's interesting. What if that was where Gracie lived? And then... And then Elizabeth was in in a little inn in the old, more densely populated, um, precious little architecture. I mean, it's beautiful. It's antebellum architecture that has not changed since the post-Civil War years. But it's also a crazy party town now, 24-7 marauding. American, you know, guys with open container, you know, open container beers and just drinking and, you know, bridal showers and and weddings and all that stuff going on the whole year round. And we brought some of that into, because it's always filmed in this slightly gothic, misty, you know, romantic, uh, dark way. And we tried to do something different with it. And when we saw Tybee, it completed the whole conception. I mean, there's, I think, like, it's interesting you say it's normally filmed in this kind of gothic way, you know, because I think that the idea of Gracie being this person who's created her life to give a very specific image, and there's this, yeah. like, simmering, like, undercurrent, and I think maybe that's, as a British person, projecting onto the the location of the film, there's this, always this kind of, like, uneasiness you feel. You're like, this location feels off. Yes. I don't know why. <laughs> you, you do, you do. And and we went to the, we, we actually found that house, uh, Sam and I. We went off the beaten path of the places that, that the film commission was showing us in Savannah and we was like, well, wait, let's go here. Turn left, go there. We found that block. 
we were like, shit, the oak trees with the Spanish moss dripping down, and then the beginnings of these suburban houses built in the late 80s, late 70s and early 80s. We found that house, and we put a note on that, the door of that house, and heard back from that owner within the days we were there and got to visit that house. And the sliding glass doors had the precipitation lodged between the glass and the socked-in white light of the marsh uh, setting that all these that most of these houses are sitting on there's very there's a little bit of beachfront but otherwise it's marshland and you can't it's pretty to the eye i guess but you can't penetrate it so you're locked in and that smeary light became the sort of um model for what christopher blavel the dp and i decided to do with the filtration of the lenses throughout the making of the film so there's that squirmy disquieting a sense of light seeping out past the partitions of windows and frames mm. that permeate the shots of the movie. Because you're so on edge watching it. You're kind of like, you're waiting for the shoe to drop, which I guess is also kind of what Joe is waiting for for <laughs> yeah. most of the film. Yeah. Um, I, I'd like to kind of go back to the beginning, having talked a little bit about the end, because this film has one of my favourite moments of the year on screen, which is the crash zoom we have in like the opening scene onto Gracie saying... I don't think we've got enough hot dogs. I just kind of want to know more about that moment because it, so, it sets the tone so perfectly for the film and kind of like disrupting our expectations of what we're about to watch. You know, you kind of hear the premise and you're like, this could get really, really dark really quickly. And it does get dark. But there's also so much kind of like humor in what's going on. And yeah, yeah could you talk a little about the kind of opening and that specific choice there? Sure. It's funny that one moment which has been talked about a lot and which I the minute we added the sting of music to it in the editing room I was completely deliriously happy but um and of course I I wanted to zoom in on her for that line the line is amusing but it's also starts to reveal the cracks in the edifice of this in this uh of this life and the like panic around tiny things that start to reveal things about her obviously you know, you smell like charcoal, you know, like, oh my God. and weeping. The cake know, scene. The cake scene, all of these um, strange symptoms, you know, that keep accruing. But for me, it was always like, uh, for me, it was like how to deal with the metaphor of the butterfly images. And, and as soon as I found this music, I knew that this was a, a method, at least. And whether we would end up using that exact music or not, it was a method for undermining some of the metaphors that I didn't want to treat with too preciously and allow the audience to be ahead of it and to see through things and to see things coming or to be wanting to see things coming, right? And so from the very beginning, that music is, you know, you're seeing this beautiful pastoral scene of butterflies laying eggs on milkweed plants, you know, through misty layers of diffusion. and But the music is this crazy slap in the face, (laughs) this warning bell, basically. So there's something immediately predatory or at least like strange about the little legs of the butterfly. It's just not the beautiful metaphor Mm -hmm. that we would assume. And so the sting just came from that music and the zoom just came out of the visual language of the film. There are zooms in many other parts of the film. They're not quite as pronounced. Oh, the zoom, there's another, I mean, I'm just telling you how great your zooms are but the one where we meet um georgie yeah we yes. meet georgie and yes. then, you can't play this and oh i know <laughs> exactly yeah yeah <laughs> 
I mean, I love the zooms are in every one of my movies except Far From Heaven. The zoom is one of the most remarkable. It is completely a cinematic creation. It doesn't exist artifact. It doesn't exist in human perception. We can't zoom in with our eyes into a detail of an image. So it's a psychic um, expression. You know, yes, you can track in, and that's like how bodies enter space and move through space, but the zoom staying, keeping its distance, and and narrowing the focal lens around a detail or the other way around is such an astonishing thing. And it's been used by so many different directors in so many different ways, particularly in the 1970s when it became sort of de rigueur. Um, but Kubrick's zooms are utterly different from Altman's zooms, which are utterly different from Vilma Sigmund's zooms, which are, you know, are, so the, the entire history of the zoom needs to be put together at some point. Oh, yeah, that's your next documentary. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. The cinematic history of the zoom. Totally. Like, I mean, yeah, I, I love a good, like, a comedic zoom, a dramatic yeah. zoom, a sad zoom. A slow, stately zoom, like all of Barry Lyndon is just one oh, zoom in or zoom out. That's yeah. the whole movie. What a picture. What a picture. Yes. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. It was so delightful to talk to you about Likewise. Of the thank you so much. Yeah. Thank, you. thank you. Thank you. I mean, this is a grown-up film which sort of was also alluding to childhood. We've got this giant age gap. Essentially, Julianne Moore's character, I believe, was in her mid-30s when she started, I want to say, assaulting young Joe Yu, who was 12 or 13. And yeah, this is based on a real-life incident. If you want to feel really depressed, listeners, Google Mary Kay Letourneau. Um, uh, but I thought it was absolutely fantastic. I mean, like you're coming in as a fan of his, Hannah. Like, to use this, like, top-tier Haynes? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I don't. I think you find it hard to find a, a, a avowed Todd Haynes hater out there. I think that everyone who loves movies probably at least likes one of his films. But um, I definitely think this is his funniest film, um, and for me, his most kind of rewatch value film. I, I like. I would say I like all of his other films. Um, maybe I'm a, actually I'm a little bit less hot on um, Wonderstruck. Um, that that's the one that kind of doesn't really do it for me. But I like Carol, like Safe, like I like Velvet Goldgum, mine very much. Um, but this is just from the first kind of scene. It's just so um, soapy and melodramatic, and you kind of think, you know, you see this first scene where Julianne Moore's character is, is preparing this barbecue and. Um, there's a very harsh crash zoom in the first sort of five minutes that I think really like sets the tone for the film. Try not to say too much about it because I think it's a really like funny moment in the film. But um, yeah, from that first moment, I was like, oh, okay, this is that the kind of film it's going to be. And you're watching it, and the, the script is impeccable. It's so funny and so catty and biting. But then uh, the more it goes on, the kind of darker and sadder and more troubling it gets. And um, I think it doesn't pull its punches. Like it's not, uh, it's not apologizing for this relationship or trying to kind of be moral to us. Um, it, it, it's a very good film at treating you like you're an adult and you can kind of infer details and uh, read emotions and understand what's going on without having everything spoon fed to you and without characters kind of saying this was wrong, blah, 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 you know, without being didactic. I think it's it makes its points without um, dumbing them down to us. And, and it's just such a joy 
to have a film like that that is knotty and complicated and disturbing in many ways um because i feel like often times now it's hard to get films that are, that trust us enough as viewers to um not not kind of lay everything out yeah i mean the performances between from natalie portman and and julian moore and their chemistry to me was just so so mesmerizing yeah i mean do you think charles milton kind of gets a look in broken like you know, he's kind of up against two heavyweights he, he's yeah. amazing sorry he's, he's no he is he is amazing i mean i absolutely adore the film i think as i was watching it i think there must have been about tw- the first time there must have been about 20 or 15 minutes left and i like got this flood of panic that the film was going to be over soon <laughs> because i was so in the world and i and i can't remember the last time i watched a film where i wasn't thinking god how is this going to end when is this going to end even films i've really enjoyed but to just be so drawn into that melodrama and that soapiness of it. And I think Charles Melton, who, if he is known to listeners, is known, you know, because he was in Riverdale, he really holds his own. I mean, he's like, in he's facing off against Julianne Moore in uh, the most kind of, I say, overtly emotional, wrought scene in the film. And he really has his moment, but then also against Natalie Portman, who I think is at her best. I think Julianne, I think they're both always great. Julianne Moore, you know, is like a comfortable fit with Todd Haynes. But I think like Natalie Portman, I just, it's almost like I forgot how good she was for a while, you know? And it's like, she sort of re-announced herself as like, no, actually I am, I'm that bitch. Like (laughs) Natalie Portman was very good. But yeah, Charles really holds his own against them and is like a perfect foil because he does have kind of massive bimbo energy um which works really well for the film and then also makes you feel so deeply for him and it ha- you know he he's very good at sort of it, there's this arrested development of both his character and Julianne Moore's but, but for very different reasons and to very different effects and yeah I just thought I thought he was really wonderful and I think yeah the film the film's a masterpiece and, and to what Hannah says about it not spoon feeding the audiences it's I mean, we're talking about it and saying how funny it is and the melodrama and and all of this stuff, which is all true. But yeah, it doesn't, I don't feel that it underserves the topic or the the graveness of of what happened, which was that, you know, a married mother in her mid to late 30s was grooming, you know, a preteen, a a teenager. And like, that's insane. And that it is based on a true story. But I think one of the really smart things about the film as well is, you know, Natalie Portman, and you see her as she's, she isn't a big Hollywood actress in the film, you know, she's not Natalie Portman level of success. She's in, um, she's in a soap, she's in a Nora's Ark, I believe it's called. (laughs) But you know, she's like, giving enemas to farm animals or zoo animals, or you know, that that's her role. But she still is kind of this proxy for like just the sort of um, vulture like nature of Hollywood and the way she picks and picks at this family and is just kind of completely morally bankrupt, really. That element of like the Hollywood satire is like, and not even Hollywood, because like, like Rogan says, it's not, she's not kind of at a Hollywood level, maybe. She's, kind of, she's seeing this as her big break. She's going to be in this like cool indie movie about this woman who had this affair with a child. And it's going to like, you know, she's only ever treating them as a means to her ends. And no matter what Joe is kind of going through, and he's goes through this really emotional process of kind of reckoning with what happened to him and being gaslit by this woman he spent half his life with, basically. 
the scene that Rogan mentioned late on in the film is like really hard to watch because you know you're sitting there as the audience and suddenly you've been catapulted into this moment that feels incredibly personal and incredibly private and you can see this man just been broken down by like what's happened to him um and then you know you're kind of cutting away to this actress who just couldn't care less really she just wants to mine their story to um sell it back to another audience so there's a kind of like um I talked about this a little bit with with Todd but like there's a kind of complicity to it that we we take part in as an audience we're sat there watching this very salacious film um but there is a kind of you know as we've said there's like a real life story this did happen and I think it gets to as well that kind of idea of the centering or the positioning of white female criminals um particularly like in the middle class where they do something absolutely heinous and then the media is very keen to kind of portray them as like oh but you know it's just like an error of judgment instead of like a a horrible horrific thing they've done um i think it's just such a smart film and this is like sammy birch's first script as well and to be able to handle something this dark with such a kind of deafness is like incredibly impressive yeah and i mean she wrote it on spec as well so it's kind of and that it found todd haynes it's like it feels like a miracle because i don't know who else could handle the material as well but um what you you said about the kind of the the white female criminal like also as victim and you know you see the way the community rallies around gracie to you know oh she's very fragile and it's like this woman this woman's a, a, a predator and a child abuser you know and it's again without the spoon feeding there was there's a comment made by a neighbor a neighbor you know oh you know joe's family were the only korean family in town um and even the scene that is with his father where gracie said oh you know make sure see how your dad is getting to the ceremony um is he okay to drive and then he asks his dad you know are you okay to drive and it's he's kind of looking like i'm the same age as this woman yeah i can drive myself you know he doesn't say i'm the same age as this woman he says i can drive myself but it's just this real moment of i don't know i just found that really stuck with me and and people might not engage with it in the same way but that's what i was thinking is she's talking like the the level of delusion the depth of denial you know that you're talking about your in-law as though you're not age mates (laughs) it's like just all the all the layers and the way joe just kind of goes along with it but yeah i think it's an incredible film and i can't urge people to see it enough i think it's being released in cinemas here but it's also i think going to be on sky which can be a bit trickier for people to get hold of so even though it will be available at home go go and go out and see it and see it with an audience as like yeah yeah i mean i i think it's just so incredible and like how i think it's it's just so down to like the brilliance of todd haynes where it's like very very complicated dynamics that like i mean not just between gracie and joe uh but like between their children like you kind of fully understand exactly what the deal is between these two people um with with very little ever being specifically said about it i mean like there's aside from the one scene that we keep referring to that there's very little of people actually expressing their feelings about the event 
most of it is kind of people talking about the present day and how they kind of feel in the present and how the various things are fucked up or how they're kind of feeling about an event that they're going to or going to a dinner that they're going to but in that you sort of see the 20 years mm. Mm. I, I on that subject of the dynamics between the kind of family members um, I, I just want to shout out Corey Michael Smith who plays Georgie who is um, Gracie's like oldest son because he has an incredible scene with with um, Natalie Portman in a bar. And it's just like one of the funniest kind of scenes of the year for me where, you know, he's being very abrasive and kind of giving her the lowdown on the family and kind of trying to be deliberately provocative. At the same time, his band is performing in the background. (laughs) And there's this kind of moment where like, he's like nattering away to Natalie Portman and he hears like them start another number. And he's like, he turns and he says like, you can't sing this. And the camera does another like amazing zoom in on like on the um the the other band member who's just kind of looking at him like kind of with his like wide eyes and it just just made me howl with laughter. It's just it's one of those films where everything has gone right with it. You know, the casting is so spot on. And to be able to spot in someone like Charles Melton, who was very much like a heart is, is a hard heart, he's incredibly good looking, but to be able to spot the capacity within him to play this kind of downtrodden hunched shoulders very shy and kind of meek character who then goes on this like journey of discovering some quite horrible you know truths about himself and his experience um yeah I mean just full credit to Todd and the team on the film um the casting team as well because it really does feel like capturing lightning in a bottle getting something that feels so I mean this we could talk all day about it I know we're all such big fans of this film but so we haven't even talked about the score or the costume design or oh anything oh my god or the monologue, <laughs> the re- monologue. reading the letter <laughs> the lipstick sharing the lipstick. <laughs> oh, yeah the acting class scene with the, the students oh it's yeah and I mean like fans of persona this is you know you can see how heavily influenced by Bergman uh he is but like the way that mutates into like something that's you know hilarious is uh yeah genius i do feel like this film's a miracle like everything just slotted into place they shot it in 23 days and just it's so impressive it really is yeah it's just really it's probably my film of the year honestly i do absolutely adore it yeah yeah i mean i i'm a scholar of 90s um trash culture so I knew this kind of <laughs> real life story inside and out. And it is interesting the changes that they made. Like she's no longer was his teacher, which was the thing in the first one. And I think there's something about changing the character from being Samoan to Korean, which does something quite like subtle because we don't necessarily, I think there is a thing that happens particularly with like Samoan children and also with like black children, where it's like we view them as being much older than they are and we sexualize them much sooner. And that's not necessarily a sort of wider cultural thing that happens to Korean children. But obviously there's like the race. So I think a lot of the changes that they've made have made made it a lot more interesting. Like normally I would be like, hey, how could you not depict the true horrors? And my God, there are some details in this story that are so depressing. I will tell you afterwards. But um, I, I actually think he's, he, he's managed to make a more interesting dynamic film in this because yeah, what happened in real life was just like more pure trash than, like, than, than this gives us. Well, I mean, there's been, yeah, there's been quite, I think that actually Todd said that he wasn't really aware of that case when he started working on the film, when he got the script. And there have been like, there's a book called Tampa, which was kind of, um, yeah, 
Yeah, no, but he must. I, I don't believe that for a second because I know well, why the dates. Why would you lie about it though? Why would you lie because, about it like that? Be, because the dates of this have been changed, right? This is not sent, set in the present day. And if you look at the exact moments in the timeline of what happened to Villy and Mary Kay, they're with the dates that are in the film. Like, why else would you have that happen? Let's say in 2016, for example. Sorry, Todd. I don't want to have you on the podcast <laughs> and then call you a liar, but I just don't believe that. Mm, I don't know. I, I, I think that it's probably, yeah, I mean, it, that is obviously a big case that happened, but I think there's probably kind of more to it. <laughs> but, um, I mean, Tamp- yeah, Tampa's a good book. I do recommend Tampa, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, also it's just this idea of what, you know, what kind of goes on in behind closed doors and these like very pitch perfect, middle american houses it's so i mean it's set in georgia as well which also comes with its own kind of like complications and i think it's set just before trump's election i think is that the kind of what we're meant to gather it's 2015 20, 20, 20, yeah. yeah so but yeah i think it's just such a such a great film um one of those things where you're like yeah I, I, i'm very entertained by this but also it's left me with so many kind of questions and i've had such great conversations about the characters in it and the dialogues and it's very quotable as well love a quotable movie um yeah, some, yeah incredible line readings so hannah do you want to go first with your scores in anticipation enjoyment and in retrospect yes i think it was maybe a four for me in anticipation i wasn't so hot on the velvet underground but i mean i did think this sounded very juicy all the way back at can and then the five in a five, I think it's, yeah, it's one of the year's best films. I'm very excited to watch it again. Great. Rogan, what about you? You've already alluded to it maybe being your film of the year. <laughs> my, yeah, sorry, spoiler. I suppose in anticipation, because I saw all the reviews coming out of Cannes, yeah, anticipation was like a four, five. And I, I say that as someone who really does not like Carol, <laughs> but I was <laughs> I was so sold on on the premise and people I trust were like, no, 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 this is the film, you know this is it so very excited to see it and then watching it I already said like just the little heartbreak when I realized that it was probably going to be over soon the first time I was watching it it was a five watch and five in retrospect I think yeah I do I do honestly think it's a masterpiece and I do I have given fives out on here before um not recently to be fair yeah like maybe more defiant fives but this is like genuine (laughs) genuinely a five-star movie I kind of I, I keep on, I've said it a couple of times, it does feel like a miracle. It's lightning in a bowl. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. I'm, no, I'm perfectly in line with you. Kind of four, four, five, I think for me. I, the only reason that I would say that the kind of four in enjoyment is because in a way, knowing the real life case made be sort of uh, was like slightly distracting, particularly when the timeline added up exactly. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Todd Haynes, I apologise for calling you a liar. But yes, five in retrospect. I think this is an absolute masterpiece. I love that he's kind of reclaimed the melodrama in such a kind of profound and intelligent and incredible performed way julianne moore acting with the biggest capital a at the start imaginable and i was just so so here for it next up it's saltburn Struggling to find his place at Oxford University, Oliver Quick finds himself drawn into the world of a charming and aristocratic Felix Catton, who invites him to Saltburn, his eccentric family's sprawling estate, for a summer never to be forgotten. 
summer never to be forgotten. That's putting it pretty mildly. Uh, <laughs> Rogan, what was your experience with like Saltburn? It's just it, it, these sort of weird aristos, like something people that you're familiar with. No, um, <laughs> they're not people I'm familiar with. God, Saltburn. It's like I what could have been, you know, a real let down I think I mean I say this as someone who really did not like promising young woman so yeah I I wasn't particularly enthusiastic about this but then as I was watching it I think the first hour is really great really strong I thought the performances were great the script is so funny and then it just it drives off a cliff in such an insane way it feels like emerald fennel kind of heard the phrase you know eat the rich and went yeah let's go with that and didn't kind of question or wonder why you know the the Baragio's character oliver quick he sort of infiltrates this rich family he, he befriends um jacob elodie jacob elodie who is wonderful by the way and i'm a massive barry keo fan but i feel like jacob almost shows him up especially on the accent front as an australian he pitch perfect posh boy voice barry not so great on the liverpool so oliver quick befriends felix and becomes entranced by this family home and you know infiltrates it and kind of by any means necessary, you know, he's not going to leave. Like, he belongs here now. So he, he sort of manipulates and plays mind games. And you don't really know why. And there's a big twist. You know, he sort of sells himself to Felix as this really sort of dev- has a devastating home life. His parents battle addiction. He grew up in poverty and kind of fought his way to Oxford University. And we, you know, we buy that and we're all in on that. And there's a twist and you don't really understand. There's no real motivation. I mean, the script is just so poor for a film that looks great and has such great performances and is really funny in parts. And just the cinematographer, sorry, I do forget their name, but they they worked on Babylon and La La Land. And it's a really gorgeous film to look at. And it's just so empty to the point of insult, honestly, you know, like enjoying the first hour because it's just a romp and then it's it's almost like it attempts to have some kind of message that it doesn't even really understand and it feels so wasteful it feels so genuinely wasteful and yeah it just I don't know what else to say it's just so bizarre I just don't know why she made the choices that she did it's so confusing (laughs) um but yeah uh, I just I'm I'm endlessly perplexed by this film I think there's an element of like this is her world and these are her people and so she's sort of tapping into specificity and like satirizing them or like skewering them in a way that i think probably makes perfect sense to her oh for you sure I mean? and i and i get the in jokes i get the rosamund pike i get the like tiny tv in the massive house or like you know not wanting to turn the heating on or like being weird about the eggs i get all those really very english upper class nuances you know that uh that to like rich americans you know complete opposite you know i do understand all that and that's what i find really funny because i think that's done well but then it's as soon as she maybe tries to adopt the perspective or the protagonist is someone not of that world. That is what has let her down because she doesn't really understand. I don't think she understands what makes these people so hateable. She understands what makes them funny and what makes them strange. She doesn't understand what makes them hateable. And I think that's why the film falls on its face. Yeah, I think this like portrayal of the ruling class as naive and bumbling, but ultimately harmless is harmless within itself. Um, we've seen countless times 
you know, Boris Johnson, a very good example of this, where people present themselves as being like a bit silly and a bit, you know, oh, aren't I a character? Um, And, you know, then the reality is they're incredibly evil and sinister. Um, And so I, I just think, yeah, the way that she treats class dynamics is just kind of fundamentally misunderstands like the English class system and how particularly how like working class and middle class people feel about the ruling class about about these you know these people that have more money than a lot of us will ever could ever ever even think of but it is a shame because I think there's so much there that's good and in the first half yeah I was very much here for this like slightly homoerotic brideshead revisited slash talented Mr Ripley thing that they've got going on um I do think the film could be gayer like significantly gayer it's a little bit gay it kind of like gestures a hand towards it but um very Kiera's character keeps going oh, I wasn't in love with Felix and it's like yeah you were like come on it's, Jake, it's Jacob Elordi like look at him like we're all a little bit in love with Jacob Elordi um especially you know after everything this year I think he's really like establishing himself as such a of talent and I'm someone who was very like anti-euphoria I didn't like it at all but I always thought he was kind of one of the better things about it and I think between this and Priscilla like he's had a good year a for accent work and b for just kind of using his like looming figure to his advantage because in this film he's a little bit kind of he's very lethe and graceful and kind of I don't know he almost seems to come from a different reality as everyone else in his family um, and then in Priscilla, he's very imposing and frightening. But yeah, I mean, it is funny. I th- I really liked Promising Young Woman, so I'm kind of differ from from Rogan there. But I, it was just like such a letdown for me. This film, I could feel myself getting like angry as I watched it, and I don't often get angry with a film. But this, just I thought it was just yeah, I don't know. It pretends it comes from a place that I don't think it really does and I think that if you're going to make a class satire you have to be so careful for it to not punch down and I think this does punch down ultimately I think it's you know it's just pretending to speak on issues of which it has no comprehension and I think for all the kind of beautiful images in it it feels really hollow and it's a shame because there are some really like stunning moments in the film and I think that Emerald Fennell has such an eye for detail and she has really good taste but I don't necessarily think it worked in the kind of yeah with with what the script was giving yeah I mean I wasn't left angry at all I just just like oh just shallow as a puddle I did think Rosamund Pike was so so funny in it and she's kind of funny in it and uh, you know right up until the end but yeah it was you know talk about himbo energy like like, this is like such a dumb film in so many ways and even though I I actually did have quite a, a lot of fun with it yeah certain things I did have to just kind of like switch my brain off like as soon as the film started to kind of do any commentary on race because there is this like half black cousin from America who is like staying with them as well like part of me just kind of wanted to put like my head in my hands and just be like for the love of god emerald don't go (laughs) go there you yeah you you can barely handle a white dude from liverpool (laughs) (laughs) never mind the nuances of what this relationship would be like yeah i mean that is that is really bad and i think if the film wasn't so like stupid 
to the point of boring as it ended, I think that there would probably be way more discourse about the really dodgy handling of race. I mean, this family, they they have the, you know, Rosamund Pike, she's bitchy, but she's very funny. But they aren't horrible people. You know, they're not they're not horrible. Well, they're not pretty horrible, though. I mean, like, she does things to her friends that are pretty dastardly, but I mean... But, I even... mean, to, to the protagonist. I mean, they're perfectly... True, true. Fi- they're perfectly fine to him. They throw him a lovely birthday party. He's allowed to stay there. They, they're very empathetic. There's nothing that's really detestable about these people that motivate that would motivate his actions the one antagonist is the black cousin from america the one person who's constantly prodding at barry and making fun of him making fun of the way he dresses making fun of the way he speaks making fun of the fact that he tries at university is the one black character and he's also not, not rich as well yeah and he and he he also depends on the cattons for money And it's just why, it's just interesting. Why of all the overtly nasty characters or of all the actual, you know, antagonistic characters, would it be the random black cousin, you know, who he doesn't even really seek revenge on in, you know, quote unquote revenge in the way that he does with the rest of the family, you know, without giving, you know, major spoilers. So it's just very stupid. (laughs) It's really, and very short-sighted and for as lovely as it looks and as funny as it can be. and And the performances are, really great yeah it's just not good <laughs> so on that note from film of the year to just not good what scores would you like to give this rogan oh so i saw it quite early and i hadn't heard i didn't know anyone else who had seen it i don't think so i was like went in you know with the three like the cast I was watching it again for the first kind of hour was thoroughly enjoying it so i give like the first hour a four and then that just drops to a two and then i'd say we probably stay on a two in retrospect like if you want to get drunk with your mates and you've got like cheap tickets somewhere i don't know if anywhere still does two for tuesdays if you want to have like a bottle of wine with dinner and then go and see salt burn with your girlfriends go for it but if you're really going to hope that you watch a really good film that is just not gonna be the case so don't think. Anna? (laughs) Were you drunk? Do you think maybe if you'd had the bottle of wine that Rogan is recommending? I have had a lot of people say to me, oh, you just need to kind of go with it and turn your brain off. But I can't do that. I'm I'm different. I'm built different. I have to keep my brain on. I have to stay stay ready. Yeah, I mean, I was really excited about this from the second it was announced. I was like, yes, come on. Give me Brideshead Revisited. Give me drama. Give me petty posh people um and then i just don't think it delivers so a four two two for me i'm probably on a sort of three four enjoyment and honestly a full point just comes from the moment where Rosamund Pike says that there are rumours that Pulp's Common People is written about her, but that couldn't possibly be true as she has never had a thirst for knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. That was a great uh, moment. Yeah, and then like maybe like a two point five in like retrospect, something like that. I mean, like it was it's just shallow as a puddle. It doesn't work. It's not a patch on talented Mr. Ripley or or, or Brideshead, but it's also one that I just if if I knew someone that wanted to see it, I would just be like, Yeah, you'll probably have fun. And, you know, fun is something like in these troubled times, so I can't entirely like begrudge it that. Before we get into the killer, I'm going to tell you all about the highlights from the Leeds International Film Festival. 
Yeah, just a little break from the series of conversations that you've been listening to because I am going to talk to you about everything that went down at the Leeds International Film Festival this year. It's been a real honour that in 2023 I got to be on this year's Leeds International Film Festival's jury. Uh, My family, a lot of it is from Leeds and it's a place and a festival I, you know, I really hold very close to my heart. So despite a rubbish year at its university back in the day, which made me permanently flee back down south, it's still something that I treasure. So yeah, I mostly stuck to the competition films that I was assessing for the jury, but um, a shout out has to go to the film Goodbye Julia from the other place that I'm from, Sudan. All of the great festival attendees clearly had impeccable taste, um, you know, despite there being amazing titles like, um, you know, Yorgos Lanthimos's uh, Poor Things. This you know, tiny Sudanese film, which was set kind of when the country was like cleaved in two in 2011, you know, a time of recording is the best received film of the festival. And I think that's really incredible when these kind of little titles could really make an impact in a place that's, you know, very far from the place that they were set, even if for me it's a, a close connection. Yeah, so if there, there will be a couple of days left of the festival if, uh, you know, at the point that this comes out. But so if you have any chance to go and catch Goodbye Julia or to catch any of the other films, I suggest you absolutely run, don't walk. But yeah, if there is anything that you suspect might be challenging or uncomfortable um, in the lineup, I would only offer that my nan and I sat side by side eating sandwiches and watching an extremely explicit BDSM comedy called The Feeling That The Time For Doing Something Has Passed, which was excellent, but not ideal nan content. But the my nan and I can endure and we actually both really enjoyed it, then you can, uh, you know, potentially get out of your comfort zone too. In the competition, there were some really lovely moments. There's just the most stunning opening shot in a film from uh, Burkina Faso called Sira, uh, where she, a woman is riding across the desert on a camel. Um, it's a revenge thriller. Um, and it's, you know, all about these kind of nomadic tribe who get intercepted by... Um, kind of terrorist militants and then you know the, the the sort of bride who is wronged has to take on the people that you know essentially murdered <laughs> a lot of the people that she holds dear i mean as, as an african person myself i would say it did seem more to be more for the western gaze but i still found like plenty in it to admire i also really enjoyed rachel senat's performance in a film called um i used to be funny which is about women with PTSD and it sort of spirals around the event that caused this for her but she's essentially a comedian who's so scarred by a very public trauma that happened that she's sort of unable to really connect with her life anymore or to make jokes of anything and yeah despite being a little hard to follow I say Sultana's Dream was just the most stunning animation and it's sort of this like feminist utopia and like the animation looks like wedding henna and it was just so gorgeous to behold but far and away my favorite of the whole bunch was this brazilian film called toll which i watched on my final day and if anyone listening has attended a film festival to muster up much enthusiasm on your final day of screenings means the film is really something special it's part crime thriller it's kind of part black comedy it kind of skews the idiocy of conversion therapy it looks at this kind of working class mother who's desperate to build a better life for herself but she's got such intense cruelty towards her queer son genuinely so many tonal shifts it kind of needs to be seen to be believed but not to fear movie truthers it's 
not too traumatic. It's a really, really fun film and one that I hope gets made available to you all very, very soon. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. In David Finch's The Killer after a fatal near-miss an assassin battles his employers and himself on an international manhunt he insists isn't personal. But before we get into the film, here's my conversation with long-term Fincher collaborators, cinematographer Eric Messerschmidt and sound designer Ren Kleiss. But uh, yeah, how, how are you? How have you found this whole kind of crazy press tour without the actors and maybe more focused on on your work well it's been really cool (laughs) that people are interested in what we've been doing you know miss the actors but it's it's nice to share what we did with people i think it's 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 really nice and it feels good to support the film in a different way, mm-hmm. uh, which is turning out to be, I think, a lot of fun because a lot of people don't understand cinematography. They don't understand mixing and sound design. And so it's sort of like, oh, my goodness, how interesting. And, and it's also nice to, um, to support David and Sion. Yeah, you know, to be to be with them, you know, it feels good. Yeah, to be kind of in, in the team, and yeah, it's it's nice. I mean, it's yeah, it does feel like nobody knows what a best boy is, but then it's like people think that they know what your jobs are, but when you scratch the surface, they a lot of them don't at all. <laughs> I'm I'm also learning a lot about what Ren does, which is really nice. And likewise with me and Eric. Yeah, it's cool because you know we sort of we all work on the same film, but my part sort of ends. And then his part overlaps and continues, and then we don't see each other when we're working on the movie. You know, now I, I think about what he might do when we're shooting the movie, which is a is a great thing. You know, you sort of become more holistic as a filmmaker the more you learn about what other people's contributions are. I think, and you begin to look for them and listen for them. You know, yeah. There's a there's a scene in the film that we've been learning what how we were working on it, which is the fight sequence we call the brute fight in the in the yeah. house where all the lights are off and they're fighting for a long time. And what I was great about being with Eric is that what I learned, and I'm, I'm watching the film when we're doing the, the sound, but what I learned from him was the screen direction, always the killer's always moving right to left, and that the geography of the house mm-hmm. was something that he, uh, Eric, and his team, was very important to let the audience know where 
we were visually in the house to, to then tell the audience the fact that you've gone all the way around from the beginning where the gun gets dropped mm -hmm. and you go all the way around back to that gun. And what's interesting to me is that how much work it was for, for Eric and for us it was like, oh, that's great because it's the same thing in sound. Mm -hmm. We had to give screen direction in terms of where... The, when the killer's walking in, for example, he, he, he doesn't know where the brood is, so he's listening for cues. So he hears the television, he hears the shower, and it's coming from over here, the TV's over there, he hears the, the shower turning off, he hears the brute walking, and it's all a ruse because the brute knows he's there, yeah. but is pretending that he doesn't know that he's there. And so the sound, screen, visual direction were both working, and it was one of those things that yeah. it, I didn't have any idea idea how much focus it was and you should describe it but um, the punching you were saying to me the other yeah I mean, well sometimes when when stunt coordinators and stunt people rehearse fights you know they they the direction of the punches is related often to which side of the of the action the camera is on mm -hmm. because the punch sells better ones one way or the other in terms of looking real and oftentimes in fight scenes we deliberately confuse the audience because when they're disoriented um, it can feel more frenetic mm -hmm. And that was something that David really didn't want to do in this in this particular sequence. He you know he wanted the, it to feel frenetic, but he wanted to make sure that we weren't so disoriented that it wasn't just tumbling bodies in the in the frame. And so we, David Comer, who was the stunt coordinator, did the initial rehearsal, and we said, okay, great, but we want to be on this side of the action for this piece. And so you need to put he needs to punch from the right instead of the left now. And that, you know, it's, it's, so it ends up being a big collaboration around what's important for everyone, but all you know, kind of led by David making sure that we're all working towards the same dramatic result, you know. And it was cool for me to hear you, Eric, talk about that and like, oh no, he can't punch that way. He has to punch in this direction. And I was like, that's great because I understand, because we've got to move the sound in this direction, yeah. move that way. And so it was, it's really, it's been great to be together and to learn about each other's work uh, in this way. So we're having a really nice time. Yeah. I mean, I, that fight scene, I did find myself towards the end getting slightly dizzy, and I didn't realize <laughs> why. And it's because I've been holding my breath for so long. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's only when I mean I won't spoil it, but it's only when a certain item came out of the kitchen drawer where I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> which that certain item last night got a great laugh. Yeah. It did. Yeah, which is fun. I mean, um, you've obviously both been collaborating with David Fincher for a really uh, long time. I mean, what were the first projects that you both worked on? I've been working with David a long time, since Seven, actually. Mm -hmm. And actually, before that, we were doing commercials uh, together before Seven. So it's been a great journey to go through all these different projects. One of the things that's fun about doing commercials is it's like a mini film school because you get to do this little thing that takes place in Italy, you know, and, yeah. and you have to do people in the streets kicking soccer balls or whatever it is. And so you get to learn all about that, and then you do the next commercial, and it's a whole different set of circumstances. The film work, um, of course, is very intimidating because it's not just 30 seconds or one minute long. So, But each film that we've done, David's been so involved in the... the and he's such a... He's so creative in terms of what he wants in terms of sound design and music uh, and the edit. So it's been great each film as we've gone along having a different sort of aesthetic and learning you know, how to make that film different from the other film that we did. And, yeah. in, in my case... My tenure is substantially shorter, but I, I first met David on Gone Girl, and you know I was just so taken by the the thoroughness of the entire process for him and how involved he is in understanding what 
contribution everyone makes to the film so that he can participate in that conversation in an informed way. And most directors don't work that way, in my experience. And so it's he is so kind of intimately crafting everything uh, while still being unbelievably collaborative, in my experience, um, far more than he's given credit for, I think. And, you know, really looks to people for uh, to, to bring something to the to the conversation, you know. And I, I love that. I also, I love the, the way that David will share with you how he sees the, you know, like most of our conversations, most of the conversations I have with David don't have anything to do with the way the movie's going to look. Mm-hmm. They're oftentimes about pace or how he's going to communicate with Ren or with Kirk. And so I, I get to think about that as, as we're working together. And that really helps us kind of um, put the movie together, I think, you know, because we're, we're really, you know, when you're shooting the film, it's quite a messy, you know, we're, we're, we're making the sausage. Mm-hmm. And I love that he's sharing, you know, we don't need that shot because we're going to hear it. Or you know, there's this thing in the in the uh, the killers in the airport in in New Orleans, and he turns over his shoulder, and I didn't really understand it um, because the voiceover that port, uh, voiceover actually isn't in the script. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, do we need a POV? What is he looking at? <clears throat> and he said, no, he's hearing this announcement, and I, you know, it's just. But you know, David really shares that world with you as, when you're making a film with him, and it's 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 incredibly inspiring for me. I love it. Making a film like this that's got so much narration, so you've kind of got the actor not connected the sound and then also <coughs> sort of visually trying to be inside his head. Did, did that prove like a particular challenge? Yeah, I mean, I think Mike, Michael Fassbender is like, he's unbelievable on camera. His, you know, his eyes and you see so much of the character in with with so little, what appears to be so little effort on his part. He, you know, he really exudes the character, I think. He just, it's 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 amazing. So, I, you know, I like the idea of composing something and, and telling the story in one or two frames or one, you know, very simple way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you often, in a dialogue scene, you're you're often just covering dialogue because so much of the of the exposition of the scene is being spoken to you. So we, you know, that was interesting to me for sure about the film. But it was, you know, it's very much about what we include in the in the frame all the time. That was always the conversations. What do we include in the frame? And and what do we exclude? Or what is Ren going to put in that we can? So we don't have to show this because we'll hear it. And you know, that's it's so interesting. All that stuff to me. Yeah, I was always curious about the voiceover because you know when it comes into our period time on the film. We have a scratch voice, mm-hmm. and there's, in fact, David himself did a, a whole pass of the narration himself with his own voice, which was, I don't, did you ever get to hear that? No. It was great. It was, um, and he, you know, what's great is that you, because he's doing it himself, you get the sense of, oh, I see, that's how snarky you really want. <laughs> and, you know, but then when, of course, it has to be Michael Fassbender who ultimately reads the lines. And so I was all serious because, you know, we get it, Kirk then cuts it in either David's rough or you know whatever version of the, the many iterations of the recordings which we have many by the way of, of Fassbender and the rewrites and the, and they went through a whole cycle of rewriting but I'm curious because obviously David in his mind knows that he's going to be hearing that voiceover right there yeah and of course you know that because you've got the script but it's interesting to, for me to see how those pieces come together because you know obviously they're not happening concurrently mm-hmm. and so it's 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 interesting to have this conversation because um, the timing of how things fit are critical and of course David really knows what it was he knows the timing of it or he'll you know he probably he's reading it in, in his mind yeah. and hearing it but still it's 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 fun to see how it all fits together and then once the rewrites come in and, and the writer and David kind of tweak some lines Kirk has to then take that audio you know and go well 
it should it has to fit within these three seconds and now it's a longer line and we were talking about that the other day how like that's great that you've written this nice long thing but it's too big you know you, so he's can we you know cut right. it and make it smaller so all these little moving parts coming together it's it's interesting to see how um it feels easy because, but I think it's because of David, it, because he really knows how it's all going to come together. So that's what's been great about this whole experience being with with everyone. Yeah, yeah. And, and then you kind of have your, you know, within the sound, you've got obviously Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, but you're also kind of collaborating with Morrissey. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why that delighted me every time. <laughs> I'm so happy to hear that because, um, you know. That was David's idea, and you know he always knew he wanted to have at least one Morrissey song in the film, and that's the sniper shot. But then it's like, well, maybe he just has an eclectic taste, so then it would be Susie and Banshee, so it would be this band. Oh, it would be Tears for Fears. Yeah. It would be like, oh, okay, this is his college years, or whatever it was, <laughs> you know, and then, oh, well, maybe that's not a good idea. Well, how about if he's just some weirdo that likes listening to Glenn Gould playing Bach? You know, and kind of a weird psychopath, you know. And so we, we, we mocked those up. We did a lot of different explorations of the music that Fassbender listens to because, mm-hmm. you know, he doesn't speak a lot in the film, so we don't really get to know him aside his narration. So the music choice, ultimately, the, the, the Smiths, really kind of gives you a sense of okay this is this is he's, he's all in on this you know and, and i don't know if you saw it but at the very beginning it, on his ipod it's work playlist <laughs> yeah and so it's like when i'm killing somebody i listen to the smiths you know and then it goes to the list so it's I'm really it's i'm happy to hear and i'm sure david and everybody would be happy to hear that it was also stressful because we didn't know if we were going to be able to actually license it i mean mm-hmm. we knew it was going to happen but there's always that part of you like i hope they agree to this you know which they did of course so that was that was nice oh god i can't wait to watch it again and kind of pick out those details i mean obviously spoiler free but are there any like particular moments you'd like people to look out for there's there are there are hidden easter eggs and you know there's bits in the film that are that i think we're we're winking at everyone a bit i think david's all of David's movies are a bit like that, though. I think there's always a, they sort of. I find they, at least in my case, they grow on me with repeat watchings. You know, you sort of start to see because they are so. There's a lot of depth to his work that I, I think gets missed in the initial watch, oftentimes, and then you watch it again and you get a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. I, uh, I mean, the fight is something I'm certainly proud of. I, I, I think in general, we were talking about it the other day with Kirk and David. I don't know that there are any shots that we shot that didn't make it in the film, which is really, really nice, <laughs> you know. Um, sometimes you, sh- you spend so much time, shoot, you know, setting up something that never makes the edit, and, and that's, that wasn't the case this time, which was really, really nice. You know, certainly stuff get, that gets trimmed. No, I, I guess the answer to your question is no. I, I think that hopefully people enjoy the entire thing, as it's really meant to be appreciated, so that there's one continuous piece of work I guess I mean, they, they are putting it in cinemas and like that's the way I got to watch it but like does does your approach at all change given that like lots of people watch it on a big screen but even more are going to likely watch it in their living rooms is that something that you consider when you're creating the film yes when we're mixing the film and uh, putting in mixing music blending the dialogue toning the sound of the voice voiceover um, coloring it 
creating the soundscape. There's a completely different mindset for what we call near-field experience, which is like this room that we're in now with the television right there. And that television might just have two little speakers. Mm -hmm. And the whole translation of the soundtrack has to be considered for this listening environment, which is a very limited one as compared to the cinematic experience, which is submersive. Speakers are all around you. Mm -hmm. Subwoofers are rumbling. You've got a full spectrum of, of sound from very low to very high. And similarly with picture, you know, the, the dynamic range of the sound and the dynamic range of the picture are very t- synonymous. So, yes, there's a completely different mix. Obviously, it's the same track mm-hmm. in as much as we're not changing um, a piece of music, we're not changing a line of dialogue. They're all the same elements, but how they all come to the audience, um, we have to design different approaches. So in the cinema, we have the volume very loud and it's submersive, but at, when we get to the mix for the people at home or on their iPods, we have a completely different uh, approach to that. We turn the level down and we want to make sure that little throwaway dialogue lines that are subtle, that which you can read in the cinema because the level is loud. Mm-hmm. Now you're at home, the level's quieter, those things get lost. Music's coming in, might come in too quietly. So these little tiny adjustments all over the place are, are done for different formats, yes. Is it the same for you? Well, you know, I used to think no, actually. I used to sort of say... You know, we, we, we make it for the best image, you know, the best experience, and then we can't control how people see it. But the truth is, this experience has kind of changed my opinion of that because of time with the time I spent with Ren and learning about the complexity that you can actually put into something in terms of sound. Um, you know, I think filmmaking is process of being a filmmaker, is, you know, in, in terms of our individual crafts, is, is often a very selfish experience. You're very focused on your part of the process. So I'm, you know, always very focused on the picture and the quality of the picture. And, but having spent time in, in a number of cinemas and hearing what he's done, it's really opened up my world in terms of what's possible and, and, and reminded me that, God, the, the, the cinema experience really is superior in terms of the audience getting a, a complete, proper version of the movie that, as it was intended, you know, that you just don't get on an iPad or a television or, or or your phone or you know, no matter how good your home speaker system is, it's it, it never has the the nuanced depth that you have in in the cinema, and that's been a new experience for me because I haven't, I, I just haven't spent a lot of time around people like Ren, where I've, I've sort of now my world is really opened up. Mm-hmm. Oh wow, look at that! Oh, I see. You know, when someone is using those tools in this way, you know. I think it's not, often not used this in this way. And that's going to be my recommendation to people. You've got to find it on the big screen and then for your 17 rewatches. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, what, that's what your network I like yeah. 17. That's nice. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that's great. Uh, dream scenario, that so you're walking out of a screening. Like, What would you like to overhear the audience saying about this movie? I, I kind of like the idea of them walking out in a little bit of shock <laughs> and silence and and seeing them think about it. You know, that, that would actually be my... I like it when they when it sparks a conversation, I guess, but there's a bit of hopefully they'll walk out like, whoa, what did I just experience? You know, that would be my dream. Yeah, I'm trying to answer, come up with an answer that isn't what I'm expecting because your question is what would you want them to say? Mm-hmm. Obviously, I think they would enjoy it. In a way, it's like um, what my expectations are is in some way this film is sort of, without any disrespect to any of it, it's sort of like a fun B movie, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's the expectation of sometimes, you know, David's films are, there's a lot of thinking and there's a lot of emotions. Benjamin Button, for example, there's, you know, philosophical questions being 
posed and pondered, but in this, it's just so raw. It's like a, you know, it's a, it's a yeah. assassin movie with a guy that doesn't talk a whole lot. So I would hope that people would walk away saying, "Well, there's not a lot there, but then there's, but it was, it was a fun experience." And I, I do feel that you know that's what David's trying to do. He's, you know, he's trying to say. I don't need to do this a uh, film this time mm-hmm. that's super intellectual with all this thought. I just want to have people have a great time and go to the films and have an experience of anxiety and and uh, be scared and be on the edge of their seat and that's it, you know. And I think that if we if people can c- walk away with that emotion and say that was fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it yeah. was that was fun, you know. I think that that's that would be the best. Oh, well, um, I wouldn't worry in that regard. That's definitely going to happen. Okay. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Oh yeah. So Hannah, Fincher aficionado, I mean, this is kind of him making something pulpy, making something fun. It's kind of more of a B-movie. I mean, a little bit kind of switch your brain off, but not dumb in the same way as uh, Saltburn. Sorry, this is a really long question. Um, Did you kind of have fun with just very simple narrative, not a huge amount of like layers to this movie? It's just trying to be a fun assassin movie. And was that enough for you? Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I'm very all in on David Fincher. He keeps saying like the stupidest shit imaginable and I'm like, stop it. Let me just live in my little world, man. The other day he was saying Netflix has really good quality control and I was like, have you watched any Netflix? I think he's just saying that because his films are on it and that means he has good quality (laughs) control. Like, dude, my man. Like, no. Anyway, sorry. More than Warner Brothers, to be fair. (laughs) <laughs> theirs is too good they're quality control <laughs> yes maybe so <laughs> um, but yeah I mean for all his kind of silly comments he keeps making um, I love his films I don't think he's ever made a bad film I think the most mediocre Fincher film is like yards above what any normal worker day filmmaker is making and I was very excited for The Killer because my favourite Fincher is the kind of pulpy uh, genre-y Fincher of Gone Girl and Girl the Dragon Tattoo and even Zodiac, which is a procedural, but it still has that kind of, you know, noir element to it. So yeah, I was very on board. I don't really like Michael Fassbender. I never feel for his characters, but then that is like perfect for this character because you aren't meant to sympathize with this man or, or even like, you know, kind of feel any warmth towards him. He's a aggressively metallic character you know he's like you can almost feel if you've like reached out and felt his skin it would be cold to the touch like he's you know repellent in many ways and i i think from that kind of opening scene we have where he's uh doing this he's in a abandoned or like not finished we work in paris and he's there for a job and he's giving us this voiceover where he's going through his process it's already patrick bateman in um, the opening of american psycho and he's telling us what an incredibly good assassin he is and he's so competent and he's got everything down to a fine art and he he speaks in these kind of like jordan peterson-esque like sound bites and then he completely fucks up and that's like where the film begins properly um and i'm very here for that as someone who plays a lot of video games particularly the hitman games the best thing about the hitman games is you know you're playing a hitman but those games become really fun when you mess it up and then you have to like fix the situation somehow and that's what the film is it's just him being like i am a very good assassin (laughs) and like completely disproving that immediately by doing something stupid um and that was yeah i was kind of there for that like it's completely played straight and there's no kind of like and pause for laugh but you as an audience member just like 
this guy is like just ridiculous. He's he's the worst, but I'm like completely all in watching him. And yeah, I, I enjoy Finch's kind of upfrontness with it. He's like, I wanted to make something kind of pulpy and quick that I could get shot very easily. Um, that I didn't overthink too much. I think that's great. More filmmakers should take that approach sometimes. Um, and hopefully it means he's going to come back and do like another big successful um, genre piece because I think he's so good. And, you know, yeah, I had a great time with it. Yeah, I, I had a great time too. It's it's so, so funny um, as well as being like exciting. But I couldn't help but like, maybe for you this is a plus because if you don't like Michael Fassbender, but given that like Fincher has that reputation for like making people do things again and again and again and do so many takes of like, can you imagine the experience of making this film where you're just having to, because loads of it is just, you know, you're hearing the monologue, but it's actually him just wordlessly walking around town and, and kind of doing things and throwing away mobile phones and you know opening doors and stuff like that <laughs> of like can you imagine what that could would psychologically do to you to spend <laughs> that many months having to do retakes and retakes of you just like walking up a, a stairwell oh, like, no. can you imagine would you rather be killed by the killer than, uh, or, than or suffer such a fate or work with Dave DaVinci um <laughs> No, I mean, I wrote in in my notes, other title, planes, trains and automobiles. I mean, it is it is kind of like a video game. I don't play video games, but I kind of, a couple of days after seeing it, I was like, this is just like a video game in story mode. It's like, okay, so I have to go to the storage unit and get my new identity. And then I have to fly here and get revenge on this person. And then once I've done that, I have to change my identity again, get on a train somewhere and (laughs) go to the airport, rent a car the other side, um, which I love. I love all that. And I really enjoyed this film, but it is kind of a lot of it is the admin of being a hitman, which feels like an in-joke in itself. And I think I've spoken to some friends who really didn't like this film. They they said it was like boring. They just didn't get it. They like a film called The Killer. And I mean, there is a lot of like bloody action. And I think there's this really great action scene where the killer is facing off with someone called The Brute or Brute down in Florida, where what, what, is, what does he say? He says, ah, oh, the Sunshine State, the place where you'll find the most like-minded vid- individuals outside of Penn penitentiary so that's a line um and he has a great pitbull called diva who i loved it just what it wasn't boring to me and i think maybe you do need to have a tiny bit of fincher's language because because it is played so straight and it is quite self-serious you might not think the jokes are jokes i mean it's this man walking around he goes to mcdonald's and he throws the bread on the bun away and he's talking about you know making sure he gets his protein and he's doing his yoga and he is this very kind of manosphere figure like you don't care about people you know you only think about the money and you only think about the end goal and you're so self-disciplined and you're so self-actualized and all this kind of shit that is just kind of fed to men in these you know youtube courses or podcasts or like by the you know these self-help grifters you know and he's kind of the embodiment of that figure or someone who has followed that very closely and he's clearly just deeply miserable and not very good at sticking to it um but if you kind of you hear all his rhetoric or you know you think oh yeah this is the killer like he's so disciplined he's so like cool and good at his job and if you to kind of take it as that face value and not as um you know, taking the piss out of him, then you probably are going to be quite bored because you're waiting for him to be really badass. And he, he has his moments, but ultimately, you know, he he's not. He he is in store. He's in story mode. But again, I I love that. 
Yeah, I do love that kind of like Fincher, you know, someone that gave us Fight Club, the kind of ultimate like adopted for all the wrong reasons film. Um, he's now given us this like Hitman movie, which is, a, yeah, as you said, about admin and um, very kind of unglamorous in its approach. Like the fight scenes I really enjoy because they are like, that is what a fight should look like. It's not like, you know, perfect choreographed, like Neo in the Matrix style kind of, and now I'm going to do a hit and then you're going to do a hit. It's like, just looks like these two guys just beating the absolute shit out of each other. And, um, you know, that I kind of appreciate it. There's like a visceralness to it. But yeah, also the character, all his mannerisms, he's obsessed with the Smiths and God... Don't you know it? Don't you know it watching the film? You will not re- love it. Apparently, there's a score. <laughs> Didn't hear it because all that you hear is the Smiths. Um, Trent, Trent Imagine getting Ross. Trent. Yeah, you got Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, and you were like, you know what, guys? <laughs> play you my best of the Smiths fucking playlist over top of it. But that that kind of detail is what makes it a comedy to me because it's like, yeah, this guy. I've met this guy in pubs. I've met this guy on Tinder. Maybe all the guys that, you know, were like, oh, yeah, I do financing are actually just like second rate hitman that I've like, met on dating apps. Um, and the thing is, like, I, I, at the extent to which Fincher knows that, it, it kind of, I, I, I've got a question mark over. I, you know, I, I know, I, same. Because I, I, he makes stupid comments and, <laughs> and you think, oh, David, oh, no. <laughs> so it's kind of like, did he make this, like, this film by design or just kind of, is it just, me as a big Fincher fan reading this stuff into it. But I mean, either way, I'm very excited to watch it again. I think it is highly entertaining. Um, I'm glad it's kind of got a little bit of a cinema run. I think it's still playing at the moment. I don't know by Friday if it will be, but um, if you can see it at the cinema, definitely try to. Because I mean, also just from a kind of, I kind of, you know, we had the interview with Eric just now about the cinematography, but you know, Fincher is a craftsman and even something like a Netflix that he clearly didn't spend as much time doing as he normally does it still feels like a kind of event and it feels like you're watching someone who was behind that camera watching not just sat in the other room watching the monitor and I don't know how many takes Fassbender was having to do but it was enough is what I would say (laughs) yeah I mean, it is like, it feels like such a like, redundant thing to say, but you just, I just watched this film and you're like, yeah, I feel so assured in the hands of this filmmaker. Like, this is really good just filmmaking, you know, whatever the story is or, you know, whatever you make of Fassbender, it's just so well made and so great to look at, even though it's has the kind of, I don't want to say dingy, but, you know, Finch's kind of more downbeat aesthetic you know he doesn't have like necessarily colorful visions of the world but yeah and you brought up fight club as well and it is that sort of indictment of capitalism that so many people will entirely miss (laughs) so many people will entirely miss as the we work and the mcdonald's and the amazon and the um equinox and uh, without you know giving too much away at the end it's kind of he goes through this rolodex of people who have wronged him and then he gets to you know the big boss and you know has a kind of different reaction i suppose i don't think that's giving too much away but it's like you know that's how we maybe think about you know capitalism there's the worker and then there's the big boss and i don't know you could read so much into this film that I honestly like you said Hannah not got a clue if David Fincher has read that much into it um (laughs) I believe that he has and basically what has happened is that the strikes have gone on for a very long time so he was lumbered with doing a lot of press and he's tired (laughs) I want to generously interpret how some of these 
not great comments have been uh, undermining his artistry. No, you're right. I'd love to be that optimistic. Yeah, I mean, he's doing his series on cancel culture at some point, no? (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, we live in hope. Yeah, and if anyone complains why I didn't ask um, about why we won't be able to get season three of Mindhunter. I did ask. It was just after the cameras were off and they asked me to please stop asking them that question because they get a lot. They get a lot of it. And I think Fincher is uh, very, very sick of uh, of being told that that's what we really want, not the kind of... Did you do like a weird documentary for Netflix recently? Yeah. Was, there was something where he really teased that we might be getting an announcement of season three of Mindhunter and it was something that nobody wanted. Yeah, before we move on to our final Rex, uh, what scores do you want to give The Killer? Reagan, do you want to go first? Yeah, I mean, I love David Fincher, so five in anticipation. It was my probably most anticipated, um, one of my most anticipated of the year. I'd say four watching it and then I'd give it like a solid four in retrospect it's very rewatchable in a different way to to may december but but it it's um yeah, i find it like quite comforting i've seen it like it's, it's it is that like feeling of assuredness uh from the filmmaker and uh hitting everything just right I, I really like the film hannah what about you yeah i'm fours across the board on this one it also kind of i think it ends in exactly the same way as infinity pool with the protagonists both on a beach and aggro drift and agri- oh, well, <laughs> less said about aggro drift the better. actually this is the better video game assassin movie of the year i would say like and harmony kareem spent all that time at venice been like it's a video game it's not a movie it's a video game and then it's just a guy in infrared going i am an assassin i am a killer i am a husband i am a father oh god that film sucks so bad um anyway <laughs> um yeah for, for across the board um still very here for my man my man david i hope he doesn't take a long time to do another one hopefully he's kind of back in his groove now and we'll get something you know two another two years um because i'm always excited to know what he's working on i I still think he's one of the greats and i was it was it you rogan that was telling me about soderbergh um being like yeah i just i just steal everything from fincher yeah well it was like uh, i saw them they did they were in conversation at tribeca this year and um that just sort of they they have like a, a codependent filmmaking friendship in the most beautiful way um where they just sort of steal from each other and i think fincher said in a recent interview i can't remember where that like yeah i was having trouble with the edit so i just sent it to soderbergh and he cut 20 minutes off it you know and it's kind of like wait so he edited your film and it's like, well, yeah, but he's my friend. It's it's great to know like how close they work because they're both wonderful. I do love that in um, I think it was in Soderbergh's like end of the year list. Like the killer was on there, like you know, because he always does his like account of everything he's watched in a year, everything he's watched and read. Um, and the killer was on there like three times. <laughs> it was nowhere near to coming out, and he'd already watched it three times. <laughs> yeah, he was being put to work. Oh, <laughs> how lovely. Yeah, sorry, my scores. Uh, yeah, fours across the board as well. I think um, I do think of what um, Hafa Salas Ross said to me about this film: of that it's not a film, it's a movie, and it's a movie in the best way. <laughs> it's like, yeah, great fun. I'm going to watch it again probably tonight. I tried to watch it last night again, uh, but Netflix is doing a really fun thing where it's cracking down on you accessing your account from various different places so yeah i'm not i'm not a fan of this company and i would like fincher to stop praising them but yes uh i will i will figure it out and i will be watching it again so before we wrap up we've got one last thing you guys are going to give us some non-movie recommendations 
Hannah, do you want to go first? What is the non-movie thing that you suggest people seek out this week? Um, I've got an easy one this week. Uh, go on to the illustrious streaming service, Paramount Plus, if you have it. Uh, it's available on Amazon if you don't have it. Um, but we don't like Amazon. So, you know, anyway, whatever way you want to access it, um, Nathan Fielder and Benny Safdie's TV show, The Curse, starring Nathan Fielder, Benny Safdie and Emma Stone and uh, John Malkovich. <laughs> He's there too, um, Is has started and it's, it's just really great. I have watched it all I kind of got my screeners and just watched it all in like two nights and it's baffling and weird and uncomfortable if you don't like like kind of cringe tv you're probably going to struggle with it a lot because it's so cringe inducing but yeah really really wonderful um discomforting unnerving watching um with the best season finale I've seen in maybe since succession yeah just just really i don't want to say too much it's about a, it's about a, a, a couple who are property developers and they they're shooting their own um hgtv show which in the uk is kind of like changing rooms uh ground force you know that sort of like home makeover stuff um and it touches on gentrification and indigenous rights in america but there's lots of other stuff going on there and it's yeah it's just really really great and a really good kind of step up, in my opinion, from like Fielder's whole, is it fake, is it real um, shtick that he's been doing with like Nathan For You and The Rehearsal. I think I, I much prefer this to to those properties of his. Um, and Benny Safi's acting again in it and he's very, very funny and horrible. <laughs> and it's just, yeah, really, really great. I could kind of just babble on about how much I love it all day, but yeah, wonderful show. Oh, oh that's great news. Cause I, I love Nathan for you, but I think the rehearsal lost its way. Um, and kind of second half of that season wasn't anywhere near as funny as they thought it was. Um, <laughs> what about you? Yeah. Well, I'll second the curse. I've only seen the first episode so far, but yeah, um, absolutely loved it. But my non-movie recommendation would be um, Nigella Lawson's Lasagna of Love. Uh, I made it last week. It took me about four hours and it was beyond worth it. I've never made a lasagna before. I'm sure there are... I mean, it's not a complicated recipe. It's just a time-consuming recipe. Um, But I think with, you know, the cold weather coming, you want comfort food. And it's also massive, so it kind of just doubles as meal prep unless you live with 12 people. Um, you can probably get 12 portions out of it. So, um, yeah, take some time, go to the butchers, get, you know, some nice meat, do your shopping, have a nice just day of cooking because it is a really great reward at the end of it. Yeah. And just generally just cook more of Nigella Lawson's recipes as it's like autumn because she knows how to make comfort food. Yeah. That's my rec. She does. And she's just such a delightful person on social media for the most part. I haven't checked recently. And in these troubled times, actually, sometimes that has. She's been, she's been pretty quiet. Um, oh, OK. Good, good. I'll that's take what that. I need. Yeah, fine. Yeah, that's all we're asking. <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah. Oh, God. Now, I'm, I, I am actually going to completely take you up on that. Um, yeah, I love a good slow cooked ragu i love a lasagna i actually made myself the timbalo from uh big night the other day just because i wanted some like comforting pasta it was delicious <laughs> listeners ignore my recommendation that doesn't count i don't do one of these make the lasagna not the big night timbalo 
But if you've got thoughts on these films, you can email truthofmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLies. We'll be back in a fortnight to get into Ridley Scott's Napoleon, Fallen Leaves and Anselm. Thanks very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were Hannah Strong and Rogan Graham. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankus. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.